If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9 this morning. We're in uh, Paul's great letter to the Romans, and we are moving now for the second week deeper into Romans 9, and uh, the Apostle Paul has shown us uh, the riches of the gospel. He's told us in this great letter that whether you have the Bible and you're a Jew, or whether you don't have the Bible and you're a Gentile, all are under the wrath of God by nature, all are unrighteous by nature, and that there is a righteousness that God has provided through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God by faith. Paul has taken us up. He has shown us the heights, and now he is taking us and showing us the depths. And as we come into Romans 9, we're going to look this morning at verses 6 through 18. And I want to just give one word of... Uh, preface to this, these, this chapter and these verses we're looking at specifically are some of the most difficult in all the Bible. Um, John Piper, I would encourage you to listen to his series on this. He's, he did um, a book called The Justification of God, which is one of the most thorough treatments of this section. And Piper, as he recounts his transition from man-centered theology to God-centered theology, made the statement, emotions run high when you feel your man-centered world crumbling around you. Emotions run high when you feel your man-centered world crumbling around you. You may experience that today. And if you do, I hope that God gives grace that you would submit yourself to who he is and what he's revealed about himself in Scripture. And I also want to encourage you that uh, there will be more treatment of this next Lord's Day, Lord willing, where we'll pick up on the second part of the argument in verse 19. But uh, this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Romans 9, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 18. You'll find that on page 945, and you will especially find it helpful to have a copy of Scripture open this morning, reading along with me. And before we do read God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer, and let's ask His blessing as we hear His Word read and preached this morning. O Lord, our God, you are the sovereign God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who does according to your will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can say to you, what are you doing? And we love that you are the sovereign God, that you are in control of everything that you have decreed whatsoever comes to pass, and that you decreed to have mercy on us that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that you elected a people for yourself in the Redeemer who you elected to die and to lay down his life for us. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. We pray that our hearts would soar in worship. We pray that you would stir up our affections. We pray that you would humble us under your mighty hand. We pray that we would know that you are God and that we are not, that you have made us and that we have not made ourselves that you have redeemed us and that we could never redeem ourselves and that we cannot add one thing to what you have done for us in Christ. Father, we pray that we would know your grace in a fuller measure. Give us humility and meekness as we come to the scriptures and help us to hear the voice of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Romans 9, beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul has poured out his heart uh, for his unbelieving brethren, the Israelites, that he longed for their salvation. We talked about the significance of that standing at the top of this chapter last week, his, his missionary heart for unbelieving Israel. And now he asks the question, 
But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the offspring of Abraham, or children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated." What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, Romans 9 has always held a place of importance in my life. One of the earliest memories I had As a very young boy, I was maybe four or five years old, was my dad teaching me the theology of Romans 9 and Ephesians 1. And I remember thinking as a boy, though I didn't know the Lord savingly at that point in my life, intellectually, this makes sense. If God is God, if God is that being of which there is none greater, if he has to, by necessity, being the greatest being of which there is none greater. I don't think I did this as philosophically when I was four, but I got, if that's God, if he's in control of everything, surely he has to be in control of the salvation of his people. Surely he must be sovereign over who is saved and who is condemned and damned. And the Apostle Paul comes out of the chute, not as an academic ivory tower theologian. He is not doing speculative theology. The Apostle Paul is not coming out and asking the question, what is the philosophical structure of why some are saved and some aren't? He'll answer that question, but the Apostle Paul is dealing in the context of a burdened heart, a grief-stricken heart, about why his fellow countrymen, if they had all the word of God and all the promises, why they have not been saved. And Paul is going to say, because God has mercy on some and others he hardens. God has elected some to eternal life and others he has not. And Paul is dealing as a missionary and a pastor and... It's important for us as we come to look at this, not to look at it as a philosophical treatise, but to look at it as something born out of the truth of scripture and out of a burdened evangelistic heart. As I got older and I understood Romans 9 very well intellectually, I'll never forget a trip I took to Atlanta with a friend who at that time was in youth ministry. I was very rebellious. He was reaching out to me. I had better theology than him, but I didn't know the Lord. And as we drove on this trip to Atlanta, we got into a discussion about Romans 9. And I'll never forget reading this portion of Romans 9. And I said to my friend, I said, but it says in verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he will and he hardens whomever he will. 
And my friend said, I know that's what it says, but that's not what it means. And I said, well, what does it mean then? Because that's what it says. Um, Sad to say my friend is no longer a Christian, is not walking with the Lord, hardened his heart in many ways. I wonder in part if it's not because he was not submissive even then to what God's word says. It's always a scary thing to twist scripture, to reject it because we don't like the hard things in scripture. When I was converted at 24, um, my best friend Stephen, who who you met, was coaching me on, on... what kind of wife to look for, and we were young and impulsive and thought we were super spiritual, and he said, well, when you meet, when you meet the girl that, that you think you want to marry, you need to show her Romans 9, and if she says, yeah, I don't believe that, you need to say, Romans 9 is always in the Bible, but you have to go. Um, I would not counsel any young men looking for a wife to do that. We were young, and we were impulsive in our thoughts. But on my second date, I did show Romans 9 to my wife, and I walked her through this passage, and I'll never forget, having never heard this before, and I said, do you see what this says? And she says, yeah, that's what it says. I said, are you understanding what this is saying? She said, that's what it says. I said, I'm in love. This is is love. Now, everyone everyone has a different spiritual journey. Everyone has a different... Uh, spiritual reaction to things. I told you about John Piper at the opening of this. Piper talks about, and I would encourage you to read that if you wrestle with this. I would encourage you to go online, listen to his Roman series. He gives you the whole history of how he wrestled with this and how he went from that man-centered theology to a God-centered theology. And again, let me read this quote. Piper said, emotions run high when you feel your man-centered world crumbling around you. That's what Romans 9 does. It tears down a man-centered world. It tears down a man-centered idea about salvation. It crushes man's pride. It lays man low. It says to man, as the scriptures say right here, it is not of human will or exertion, but God who has mercy. And emotions run high. And I love this part of Piper's testimony as he has finally come to embrace the truth of Romans 9 and understood the, the, the purpose of this, he says this. In essence, it happened like this. I was 34 years old. I had two children and a third on the way. As I studied Romans 9, day after day, I began to see a God so majestic and so free and so absolutely sovereign that my analysis merged into worship. And the Lord said, in effect, I will not simply be analyzed. I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered. I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized, it is to be heralded. It is not grist for the mill of controversy, it is gospel for sinners who know that their only hope is the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their rebellious will. I don't think it could be said any better than that. So whatever is said this morning, whatever you come away with, know that many people come to Romans 9 with many different emotions, with many different ideas, It was formative in my own life. Next week, I'll tell you how I believe the Lord used verse 21 and 22 to drive me to Christ. And yet the Apostle Paul, as I've already noted, is giving us a pastoral. He's giving us a pastoral explanation. His heart is burdened. He's wondering why. Why, if God gave promises and he he bound himself in covenant to a people for thousands of years, why are they not believing 
in his son? Why have they not believed the gospel? Why has he not redeemed them? And his answer is not, well, because it was all up to them and they didn't exercise their will enough. Paul takes a step back and and I wonder if Paul is not wrestling in his own soul. He knows the scriptures. He knows the truth. There's a sense when you read Romans 9 that Paul is actually counseling himself. His heart is grieved for the salvation of his countrymen. He leads off this great chapter on God's sovereignty with the greatest missionary heart demonstration of somebody longing to see people saved. I want to say this this morning. One of the one of the snares that you want to avoid in reading Romans 9 is, well, if God is sovereign over salvation, he's elected some and not others, he has mercy on some and he hardens others, and he's sovereign over all that, why does it matter? Why evangelize? Because Jesus did, because Jesus commanded us to, because Paul did, because we don't know who's elect and who's not elect. Paul was one of the very people that he is burdened to see saved. He is an Israelite, and he's wondering, why did Jesus stop me on the Damascus road? Why did Jesus have mercy on me? Why did Jesus blind my eyes and open my heart? Why did Christ call me and send me? Why has he left so many of my brethren to perish? Why? And then there's a second question. Paul's essentially hearing an objection. Well, Paul, you talk about the faithfulness of God. You, talk, you say God's word doesn't fail. You might remember that verse in Isaiah 55. We love it, where God says, As the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth and causes it to bring forth and bud, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so shall my word be which comes out of my mouth. It shall accomplish in the thing for which I sent it. It shall not return to me void. And Isaiah is essentially saying not one word that God has ever spoken will fail. And that means that the promises that he gave to Abraham will not fail. The promises that I will be your God and you will be my people and that I will bless you and I'll make your name great and that you'll inherit all things and that you'll be the heir of the world, that those promises to Abraham and to his seed will not fail. And so naturally you can see why Paul is torn because it seems on the surface that the promises to Israel have failed. Because Israel's rejected the Redeemer. They've rejected the seed of Abraham. They've rejected the one who establishes the promises and gives the inheritance. And so, quite naturally, you can see why Paul starts where he starts in verse 6. We're going to see three things here this morning. First, we're going to consider the question. And then we're going to consider the explanation. And finally... We're going to consider three examples, the question, the explanation, and the examples. Well, notice verse 6, as Paul is wrestling through this issue, Israel has all these privileges. They have the adoption, the worship, the glory, the covenants. Theirs were the fathers. Jesus came to them. He's God over all. He set that nation apart, and yet they've rejected the Redeemer. They're perishing. He's only saved a remnant. And from chapter 9 to chapter 11, the overarching flow of this is, what about Israel? There is a Jew-Gentile issue at stake. Gentiles are being saved. Not many Jews are. Paul was one of the very few Jews who believed in Jesus Christ. And yet they were the covenant people. And so Paul is going to weave together in Romans 9-11 through 11 this theology of how God is saving his people out of the Jewish nation, out of the Gentiles, how he's bringing together one in Christ, a new Israel. And he asks the question, how is it that God's word has not failed because 
If God is faithful and if these promises are sure and steadfast, why, why is not the whole of Israel being saved? And notice what Paul says in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul is going to do something in this chapter. It's very important for us to see. Paul is going to vindicate God at every turn. Our big problem today is we want to vindicate self. We want to vindicate people. Oh, he's not that bad. No, he's vastly worse. Whoever it is, they are vastly worse. We love to vindicate people. Oh, they're a nice person. Plenty of nice people go to hell. Remember my mom saying that to me as a boy, and I didn't get that. There are plenty of nice, kind people in hell. Let that sink in. Our problem is we try to vindicate man, but God will be vindicated. And Paul steps up and he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God has not been unfaithful. God is going to and has and forever will fulfill his promises. And notice that he says in verse 6, he, he goes from that question and that, that vindication of God's word and saying that God will always accomplish whatever he has said in all the scriptures. And that means that God is going to fulfill all his promises to Abraham and to everyone who has the faith of Abraham. And that's what Paul has said all through Romans. John Flavel has a great quote, something along the lines of, uh, if we don't have Abraham's faith coursing through our hearts, then his blood coursing through our veins will do us absolutely no good whatsoever. If we don't have Abraham's faith coursing through our hearts, then his blood coursing through our veins will do us absolutely no good whatsoever. And what Paul is saying is that God made these promises to Abraham. And in chapter 4, turn back there, chapter 4, verse 11, Romans, he he says, or 4, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his seed, that is his descendants, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if its adherents of the law are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What What uh, Paul is saying in Romans 4, what he's saying in Romans 9, is that God's promise was always according to faith. And the true descendants of Abraham, which we'll see in a minute, are those who have faith. They have the faith of Abraham. They are trusting in the God of righteousness. They are looking not to their own works, not to their performance, not to their service. They are not thinking in themselves, I thank you, God, that I'm better than other people, even in the realm of sanctification. Because that's where the subtlety slips in for us. We can very quickly become like the Pharisee in the temple. I thank you, God, that I'm not like this person or that person or this person or that person. I thank you that you've given me a greater level of sanctification than them. When the man who was trusting in the righteousness of faith was the tax collector, put his head down and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the faith of Abraham was a faith in the promises of God. God had said, believe me and I'll do this. And so God's word doesn't fail. God fulfilled that promise in sending Christ. And those who were of the law rejected that promise. But God is faithful. God is steadfast. One of the things that we need as an anchor for our souls is to know that God means what he says and will do all that he says. We need that as an anchor for our souls. God means all that he says and he will do all that he says. I think what Paul says in the rest of this chapter 
difficult though it is, is meant to drive us to the sovereign purposes of God for assurance and comfort and to stir up our hearts to know that God has been faithful because he sent Christ to redeem the people. And so Paul said it's not as though the word of God has failed. And then secondly, he gives us the explanation. And you could take the second part of verse 6 and you could hang it by itself and say the rest of what Paul's going to say in Romans 9-11 through hangs on this verse. So learn this verse, commit it to memory, meditate on it. Paul says, for not all who are descendant from Israel belong to Israel. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. That means in the mass of Israelites who physically descended from Jacob and before him from from Isaac and before him from Abraham, in that mass of people that physically descended from Abraham, God is saying there was always a true Israel within Israel. Not all Israel was the real Israel. Not all Israel received the promises of God and believed the gospel. In fact, you see what a small remnant it is throughout all of Israel's history. God says in Isaiah 6, if I had not left a remnant, you would have become like Sodom and you would have been made like Gomorrah. That's the church he's speaking to. If I had not left a remnant, you would have been like Sodom. You would have been made like Gomorrah. Paul will pick up on this in chapter 11 and he'll say, even now there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There's a remnant. You see it when Christ comes. There's no grand welcome for Jesus. There's some smelly shepherds. There's some Gentile wise men. And there's a little band in the temple, an old woman and an old man, and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're watching, but they they seem to be the only ones looking for redemption, looking for God to fulfill his promise. And And no sooner does Anna, the prophetess, see the baby Jesus that Luke says she she went and spoke to all those who were looking for redemption in Israel. There was always an Israel within Israel. And what that does is that helps us push aside any wrong notions about ethnic descent. It helps us push aside any wrong unbiblical notions because at the end of the day, the big problem with Israel was we're Abraham's descendants. We have promises. We belong to Abraham. We have the promises. And Jesus, not Paul, not Luke, not any other biblical writer, but Jesus said the most daring thing ever to them. He said, you are of your father, the devil. The covenant Lord who created the covenant people said, to that multitude of them that did not believe, you are not the the children of Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. And so what Paul is helping us see as we go through Romans is that there was always within the visible church a true Israel, a true body of believers. There was always a remnant. I think that this is important for us to get because what that does is it makes us take our salvation a whole lot more serious. If you have a view that we're all just kind of in, we're all just rocking our way to heaven, you're never going to take seriously what the Bible says everywhere. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in thereby, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. And that means that we need to come to this with the utmost seriousness. Am I trusting in Jesus Christ? Am I among the true Israel? Remember, Paul 
picks up on this in chapter 2 and he says, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, he's a Jew who's one inwardly. Circumcision's not outward in the flesh, it's inward in the heart. And the worst thing in the world that you could ever do is say, I'm baptized, I'm outwardly a Christian, I go to church, I give, I do this, I do that, because that was the very problem with the unbelieving Jews, instead of looking in faith to Jesus Christ like Abraham did. Remember what Jesus said in John 8. He said to those Jews that didn't believe on him, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus says, Abraham had faith in me. He saw my day. He knew that I was coming. He knew that I would be a redeemer, and he knew he needed a redeemer. He didn't trust in his external privileges. He didn't trust in any of his Jewish privileges that God had given him. If anyone could have trusted in their ethnic or external privileges, it could have been Abraham. And yet Abraham looked in faith, and Jesus constantly said, if you want want to be the children of Abraham, then do the works of Abraham. He believed in me. He believed in me. And so Paul tells us that the explanation of why the word of God has not failed is that they are not all descended of Israel who belong to Israel, that there's always a true Israel within, and that to them God always fulfills his promises. The promises of God will always come to fruition for every one who he has chosen in Christ, who is part of the true Israel, who has faith in Jesus Christ. And then as he begins to unpack this, he gives us more explanation. Notice verse 7. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, Paul is going to do something very intricate. He's going to go back into the Genesis narrative, and he's going to look at all the dealings of Abraham with Sarah and the promises of God about a son and a redeemer. And then he's going to look at Abraham and what he does in the flesh and taking the Egyptian handmaiden. And that was an act of trying to fulfill the promises of God in his own strength. And he's going to say, look, it was not Ishmael, the child of the handmaiden. It was not the the child of the flesh and the arm of the flesh and whatever you do. It was not... God didn't reward Abraham for for taking Hagar and getting a son. He said, I will give you a son, and it will come from Sarah. I'm going to visit you, and I'm going to fulfill my promises. And so so Paul sets these two children side by side. And he wants you to understand that it was never the children of the flesh who receive all the fruition of God's promises. This is heightened, I think by the fact that there is a Gentile, the first Gentile convert actually came from one of Abraham's other children and didn't come from Isaac. Uh, It was Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. He was a Midianite. And he's the first Gentile convert recorded in Scripture. And what that shows is that it's not even physical descent through Isaac because the Jews could hear this and they could say, well, Abraham, here's the problem with your argument. Ishmael came from an Egyptian handmaiden. We come from Abraham and Sarah through Isaac. And lest anybody get confused about that, God has put this beautiful picture of a Gentile convert in Jethro, the Midianite, who counsels Moses, who who teaches Moses to set up eldership in Israel. And he becomes an example because he doesn't descend from Isaac. He's a child of promise. 
He's one of the elect. He's part of the true Israel. And Ishmael, who had the covenant sign, who had circumcision, is cast away from the presence of God. Now, what that means for us is that as we seek to raise our children to know the Lord, we must never, ever, 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 ever convince ourselves that they're okay because they're within the pale of the visible church. While they have promises from God, while they are nurtured under his word, I would remind you that what Paul says in verses 1 through 5 is true of all believers today. We have the word, we have the worship, we have the covenants. We have all the external ministry in the visible church. And yet we must never think that just because our children or us or our spouses are within the pale of the visible church that we're okay. And so I think Paul is giving us these things so that we would understand that it's all of God and it's all of grace. It's all according to promise. It's not according to flesh. And then he gives us three examples. I'm going to quickly walk us through these this morning. First, he tells us that it's Isaac, not Ishmael. Then he tells us it's Jacob, not Esau. Then he tells us it's Moses, not Pharaoh. So Isaac is redeemed, not Ishmael. Jacob is redeemed, not Esau. Moses is redeemed, not Pharaoh. And so lest anyone look at the Isaac-Ishmael situation and they say, well, this is our point, Paul. We're from Isaac. We descended from Isaac, not from Ishmael, because that's, that was the refrain and that was the heritage. Paul is essentially saying, listen, it's about individual election. It's not about national identity or corporate identity. And what that means, I think when we read Romans 9, the takeaway of these three examples should be, where do I stand before God? The big million-dollar cash value, the biggest question you could ever ask is, where do I stand before God? No one can say when they read these examples, what about him? It was Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Moses, not Pharaoh. And notice notice what the Apostle Paul does in verse 8. He says, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. This is what the promise says about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And as he's already set that out, you might hear the objection. Okay, maybe, maybe Paul's mistaken. Maybe he doesn't understand that we're descendants of Isaac, not Ishmael. And notice verse 10, not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called. It was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Here's what God does. In case anyone tries to finagle their way out of what the scriptures teach and try to do some kind of sophisticated twisting with Isaac, the Apostle Paul says, fine, let's move on to Isaac's children. And he says, Isaac had two twins, Jacob and Esau. They may have been identical twins, we don't know. But they were twins. They had the same parents. They were of the same lineage. They were children of the son of promise, Isaac. In one sense, Esau had more privileges because his was the birthright. He had a right to the inheritance. He was the heir covenantally in the ancient Near East and covenantally. Esau should have been the heir of all things. And God essentially said that you may know that my purpose in election stands 
The older, Esau, will serve the younger, Jacob. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And lest you say, well, wait a minute, maybe that's because Esau did some really wicked things, which he did. Let me remind you, Jacob, Jacob did wicked things. Jacob was the chief of twisters. He was a deceiver. He was a swindler. Remember, he supplanted his brother, even at birth. And Paul takes it back and he says, fine, you can hear, you can see how Paul's receiving all the objections. Well, Paul, what about this? That's too harsh, Paul. That's too harsh. What about this? Maybe this was the case. Paul says, fine, let me take it back as far as I can go. Before the twins were born, God did something with respect to them. Before they had done any good or evil, that the purpose of God in election might stand, God said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Charles Spurgeon said in one of his most memorable moments, a woman stood up and while he was preaching on this, she said, how could God hate Esau? And Spurgeon said, ma'am, I'm not concerned with how God could hate Esau, but with how he could love Jacob. You're asking the wrong question. If you ask the question, how could God hate anyone, then you are miserably deceived and foolish and do not know how wicked you are. And I'm going to say that as forthrightly as I can this morning. If you think you deserve to be loved by God, you serve a different God. Not one of us deserves to be loved by God. Every one of us deserves eternal condemnation. Every one of us deserves wrath. My children deserve wrath. My wife deserves wrath. I deserve wrath. You deserve wrath. And at ground zero of Christianity is the fact that God doesn't have to save anybody, but he chose to set his love on some. And he sets out that picture with Jacob and Esau. Why did God love Jacob? Because he wanted to. How could God not love Esau? Because he doesn't have to. God doesn't have to love rebels. God doesn't have to love sinners. God doesn't have to save anybody. That is the greatest delusion of American Christianity is that somehow I deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of salvation. You do not. And the reality is when you say that you do, you belittle the grace of God and you make grace something you actually do and something you deserve. And then it's not grace, then it's works. Notice, notice what Paul does. Paul sets in contrast. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. What if it were because they had done good or bad? Then it would be by works. Your salvation would be by works. If God took account whether what you had done somehow played into your eternal standing. It would be by you. It would be that man-centered theology that Piper said needed to come crumbling down. You know, it's interesting that men will go so far in, in attributing sovereignty to God. They'll go so far. We at, he holds the earth in orbit. And so we don't just fly off into whatever. And he, he calls all the stars by name, and he makes the sun rise and set, and he sends the rain. I mean, you don't. We agree on that. So we go very far in agreeing. We even go far in saying God makes us differ from another. Most of you are more attractive than me. Let's be honest. I don't get mad about that. It's sad. Um, most of you have more money than me. That's okay. God makes us differ in different realms. We acknowledge that God is sovereign over how we met our spouse. We acknowledge that he was sovereign over everything we do. And we wouldn't dare say, he gave me the wife he gave me because I'm so good. 
I promise you, I can never say that. I promise you that. So we would attribute to God's sovereignty over all kinds of things, but somehow when it comes into the realm of salvation, the realm in which God ought to be most fully exalted for his sovereignty, men hate it. And they hate it because of pride. They hate it because of pride. Because it strikes the biggest blow at the pride of the human heart. They can't even hear it. They don't want to look. They don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. And yet for all that, it doesn't change the fact that God loved Jacob and not Esau, that he chose Isaac and not Ishmael, that if you're a believer, it's only and ever because he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the only reason that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is because God chose you and drew you and raised you up. Otherwise, you never would have done it. And if it was dependent on what we did, on the good or the evil that we did, then on Judgment Day, in self-righteousness, we would have the audacity to think we could stand before God and say, look what I did, God. That's why you saved me. And instead, what this ought to do is humble us and bring us down so that we would say with the hymn writer, why was I made to hear his voice? I used to weep every time I sang how sweet and awesome is the place. Why was I made to hear his voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? And that is the cry of a heart that knows what it is to be chosen by God and loved by God and redeemed by God merely by his grace. And what that does is that makes us long for the salvation of others. Let me say this this morning. We'll pick up on the example of Pharaoh in the next argument next week. This is not fatalism. This is not pagan fatalism. This is not Voltaire's Candide. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and it's just going to all end up however it ends up. This is not deism. God is not a big wind up everything, plan it all, and then let it run. God works in time and space. You know, it's interesting. Esau showed himself to be what he was. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge. He married pagan women and rebelled against God and rejected the covenant and rejected the gospel. So, so what happens to Esau for eternity in hell, though God didn't choose him for salvation, he is there deservedly. He is there deservedly. He deserves to be there. There's no one who perishes that doesn't deserve to perish. So this is not fatalism. This is not deism. I remember when I was 26 years old, I was witnessing to a philosophy major, and he knew what the scriptures taught to his credit. And he said, here's my problem. Your Bible teaches that God chooses some and not others. And the Bible says that, you know, only the elect are going to believe in Jesus. And I don't believe in Jesus. But I figure if God has elected some and not others, and from point A to point B, he's determined all things that are going to happen, then I'm not going to worry about it. And I said to him, well, somewhere between point A and point B, God put me in your path to tell you to repent and believe in the gospel. And if you end up in hell in point B, it's your fault. That's how this works. So this is not, this is not philosophical speculation. This is not just some academic exercise. This is, this is how God works his purposes out. Notice at the end of verse 11, I want to leave us with this. Notice the second part of verse 11. Why does God do this? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Do you remember in chapter 8, 
in chapter 8, that great verse that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What Paul's doing is he's retouching on that, and he's saying, how can you who have believed in Christ be comforted that everything that's happening to you is going to work out for good? It's because God has a purpose, and God's purpose will stand, and even his election is part of that purpose. And so Paul picks up on that. He says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And what that ought to do as I close, that ought to make us respond the same way John Piper did. I want to read this again. God ought to be saying to us this morning, I will not simply be analyzed, I will, I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered, I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized, it is to be heralded. It is not grist for the mill of controversy. It is gospel for sinners who know that their only hope is the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their rebellious wills. That's where all this should bring us this morning. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, these are deep and weighty things, and we have not even scratched the surface. And our hearts need to be moved and humbled. Our wills need to be broken down. We need to see you in your sovereign glory and power and the full graciousness of your electing mercy to us. We thank you that you have said, I will be merciful to you. You have, you have said to us that you will have mercy on us and that you have done so in Christ and that we are assured when we look at the cross that you have done the very thing that you have promised to do. We thank you that your word has not failed, that you raised up Christ to sit on your throne and that he is coming again. And we thank you that we are safe in him and that all things work together for good for us who are called according to his purpose. We pray that you would give us a clearer sight of these things, help our hearts to be humbled under them and to tremble under them and to worship you for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.